1: Hey friends, before we get started with this week's news, we want to let you know about something really fun and exciting at Book Riot. We are giving away 500 bones to the bookstore of your choice. That's right, a $500 gift card to whatever bookstore you choose you have through june 21st to enter but of course you should run not walk to get that done so go to bookriot.com slash bookstore 500 that's the number 500 to enter bookriot.com slash bookstore 500 enter to win 500 dollars any bookstore you want cross your fingers and toes bookriot.com slash bookstore 500 <laughs>
0: This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 264. We're recording on Monday, June 11th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. Hello, hello. A little late this week. um, Summer, things starting to happen. We're going to have guests come in and out for the rest of the summer. You know, that's how we do That's how we do. Um, How are you, Rebecca? It's cool and rainy there. It's not. It
1: is. It's It's not like like we're having a one day reprieve from like swamp Mm. season here. It's been so rainy the last couple of weeks, which like is gorgeous and lush on one hand. Everything is blooming. Um, I think I feel like Bob is mowing the grass like every other day, um, trying Mm. to keep up. But today we had a huge thunderstorm last night. Today it's like sixty four. The windows are all open. I'm drinking hot coffee again. I leaned all the way in this morning and just was like, you know what? I'm listening to Counting Crows. I'm gonna do the whole thing. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, it feels good, um, Jeff. Feels good.
0: One of my one of my friends just turned forty and for his fortieth, his uh his wife got his friends to choose songs for a mixtape. Oh, you know, to make you know, or mix you know, whatever what I anyway, mean, a playlist, I guess, mm-hmm. is now the term of art sure. for whatever these things are. Yes. These days. Let's
1: go with mixtape though. And, I like
0: it. And uh, I was trying to think of, you know, we're the same age, and he and I, um, and you know, what were what were the songs of our youth? And for me, Counting Crows lives in the same sort of interstitial brainfold as um, Gin Blossoms for mm-hmm. me. Yep. And boy, you play one song of you play one chord uh-huh. of Allison Road, and I am back <laughs> in 1992. I'm 14 years old. Yep. I'm driving my my beige 1984 Honda Accord hatchback with hail damage. I got a full head of hair and nowhere to be, um, so. That,
1: oh, it's a beautiful that's, uh, that's my that's
0: my that's my trans my uh, that's my uh, way back machine thing. Which they play yeah, in IKEA past- all the time for some reason. So I have I have this like existential vertigo when I'm like browsing the the flatware. Like wait, where am I? Oh, I'm in IKEA. <gasps> I love I'm, it that I'm you're not in IKEA in high often again.
1: enough to know that. <laughs>
0: IKEA has this thing they like Michelle and I've often theorized about why this is. Um this is what you do when you're our age with our children and mm-hmm. you know, just in general. But they like they like the good nineties playlist in IKEA. And I think it's because the kind of people that shop in there uh, are of the age where that's their music growing up, they oh, you know, yeah. feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. But also the language, even of pop songs now, is way different than the language of pop songs in the nineties. Right. Um so like just the 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 Overton window for you know, different kinds of material has moved. Mm-hmm. And it's just much more, com- you can play popular music, but it has to be 30 years old at this point. <laughs> you
1: know, really? It has yeah, to be I, sort
0: of okay for general consumption.
1: I found myself like bopping along to Mr. Jones in Home Depot recently and was like, oh, all right, yep, I'm <laughs> <laughs> 35.
0: I remember the first time I heard uh, I heard Nirvana being played in Ikea, and I had a real moment, I have to say, of like, this is what happens. Yep. This is how the machine gets you. This is just how it works. Uh, you know.
1: It's like there's a checklist you either die somewhere. to
0: hear or live long enough to hear your songs played in um, the cafeteria of Ikea. So I think that's how that uh, saying goes. All right, let's move on from that uh, existential dread. Tum me, me about a sponsor.
1: <laughs> Our first sponsor this week is Visible Empire by Hannah Pittard. This is an epic novel based on true events of love, grief, race, and wealth. It charts a single sweltering summer in Atlanta and a plane crash that left no one unchanged. Um, I just read this a couple of weeks ago. If you listen to all the books, I talked about it as well. And I have been talking Jeff's ear off about it uh, offline. I
0: know. I'm going to have to read this. I'm going to have to read this. <laughs> I'm going to. I haven't yet, but I'm, I will. Is it out today or is it out tomorrow? Or um, where, where it, it
1: came out last week, I believe. Okay. So, it's based on an actual event, Air France Flight 007, which really did crash after takeoff in 1962, killing 121 of Atlanta's wealthiest and most prominent citizens. And it left behind a city confused and grieving, and a lot of young people with huge inheritances who had no idea what to do with all that money. Basically, the city of Atlanta had made some like cultural exchange program with Paris and sent a hundred and some odd very wealthy like cream of high society people um, all over there. And they were all on the same plane coming back and the plane crashed. And so Atlanta, like Atlanta's cultural scene was kind of wiped out in one go. People lost dozens of friends, um, many, many family members. It was just a huge thing. Hannah Pittard is an Atlanta native and her mother was in the city when the events uh, that inspired the novel took place. Atlanta's mayor at the time, Ivan Allen, was a progressive who eventually received the Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolent Peace Prize, and the book, while it is fiction, does shine a spotlight on an important but mostly forgotten piece of history. When I started reading it and then Googling, I was like, how have I never heard of this before? This is just a really bonkers thing to have happened, and it happened right in the cusp, on the cusp of the civil rights movement. So the plane crash was a tragedy, but the novel also sheds light on what was going on in Atlanta um, and Atlanta's greatest tragedy at the time, which was systemic, incessant, legalized racism and the thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths and injustices as a result. So you have this contrast between these 120 very wealthy people um, who have died going on this very luxurious fancy trip and thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths and wrongs being committed against Black people in the South. Um, The full name of the KKK is the Invisible Empire of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And so in naming the book Visible Empire, Petard is turning that around and asking us to question the things that we see and the things that we don't see, the things we want to see, and the things we don't want to see. There is so much going on in this novel. Um, I've read all of Hannah Petard's novels since her debut in 2011 and really enjoyed all of them. But this one does feel like a leveling up of sorts in the subject matter and just the breadth of material that she takes on. So that is Visible Empire by Hannah Pittard. And you can find it wherever books are sold or check out a link in the show notes.
0: Um, yeah, I'm definitely reading that, by the way. Uh, Yeah,
1: you totally are.
0: (laughs) So we're coming back to the Diaz story, the ongoing story. Um, and I'm not sure, we haven't talked about this particular story at all. Um, and we'd sort of said, you know, unless something else happens with Diaz, we're kind of done with that for a while. And I think, and I'll give my take of why we might want to talk about this for a few minutes, and you feel free to agree, disagree, whatever you want to do, uh, is the Boston Review, which is a, a political and literary forum, is what they call themselves, um, had Diaz as an editorial staff person, um I'm not exactly sure that I don't think he the Boston Review makes much money the fiction yeah, editor I he believe He was the
1: fiction editor. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's it's like it's a like a lot of quasi academic not for profit literary adventures I don't think there's a lot of money associated with this position is what I'm trying to say. Um but they publish things they publish fiction they publish political social cultural um features opinions um articles of various lengths mm-hmm. And they, Being the, the fiction the, editor the, makes the, you
1: a gatekeeper.
0: Yeah, Deborah Deborah Chasman and Joshua Cohen um, co co-signed co-authored a letter addressing you know what they were going to do about Diaz's position there, um, and I think it's notable both that he was kept on, but also the, the 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 I don't know the transparency of their thinking I think is interesting in its own right, and then the decision is interesting. So yes. like maybe those are separate the related but maybe separate issues, Um, the logic they used and the issues they were wrestling with, I think my algebra would come out differently um, in terms of a decision they made. Um, But it's interesting that they showed their work, and I think there's a lot to say about that, even as we talk about their ultimate decision was to to say, we're going to keep him on board. and there was some ramification to that. It got a lot of social media play. W- where do you want to start with this, Rebecca? Am I am I close to what you were thinking about how to talk about this?
1: Yeah, that's pretty similar to, to where I was going. So they list out the reasons why they have decided to keep Juno Diaz on board as the fiction editor. Um, the first mm-hmm. of those, and I do think it is interesting that they were so transparent with their thinking, but connected to that, I think That well, my guess is that the reason or one of the reasons they were so transparent is in their thinking is a real failure to understand how that thinking would be received. Um, I think typically when you're laying out here's here are all of our reasons, you're doing it as like people will surely see our logic and applaud us for this. Um, and I think they that was a real misreading of the room on their part. So, first, they say that. In their 15 years of working with Juno Diaz, they've never received any complaints about his conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, second, they don't think that any of the individual actions that have been reported about him um, rise to the level of requiring them to end that editorial relationship. They are careful to say they don't condone the objectionable behavior that has been described um, for Diaz, but they don't think that it's like basically, it's not objectionable. Enough or severe enough mm. to rise to the level of what they say the um, the severity that animated the Me Too movement, um, and that they also don't think that it suggests that the complaints point to a larger pattern of abusing power, the kind of star power that has attached itself to Diaz over the years. Um, and so, like th- those are their three big points, basically. No one ever said he didn't. No one ever gave us any complaints about him directly. Um, none of the individual actions seem bad enough, and they don't see a pattern of behavior that's concerning. Um, given the reports and the essays and the stories that women have been telling about this, it's I, I can't understand how they got to not seeing a larger pattern. Um, but it's interesting. I think that they did lay that out, and then they conducted an independent. You know, for sort of independent investigation as well to try to do their due diligence about it. Um, Basically, they're walking this line in this letter that they've written of trying to acknowledge that um, race and gender issues are at the heart of what the Boston Review does or are part of what the Boston Review aims to do. And so they want to be sensitive to it and they think that he's done some bad things, but none of the things were bad enough. Um, Mm. So they're going to keep him on. Um, is basically my reading of it. I think it's bad logic, first of all, Um, but I do think that it's a a real misunderstanding of um, the tone of the conversation about Diaz in particular, but the tone of the conversation in the culture at large to have thought that this letter justifying this decision would have been received as like, oh, okay. Um, Like, of course, Hmm. it seems to me that they didn't anticipate there would be... Consequences or criticism um, for this, which they have received quite a lot of both. Um, the poetry editors, um, Timothy Donnelly, B.K. Fisher, and um, Stefania Heim, resigned um, effective July 1st mm-hmm. from working with the Boston Review because of this decision that was made. So that's a consequence. Um, Vita wrote a piece responding to these issues. Um, and so I think it's, it is interesting that they did their thinking in public around it. Uh, it kind of reminded me of, uh, when was it Sherman Alexie did his thinking in public a little yeah. bit around the, that author that was pretending to yes, be
0: the yellow facing for the yes. best American poetry a couple years ago.
1: And uh, it was also not, um, it was, it was also not logic that everyone saw the logic right. in. <laughs> um, but it was interesting mm. to see that. And I, I, I feel like people put their thinking in public in that way when they think it's very solid, um, which is an assumption that I. am Yeah, making I'm not here. sure.
0: I don't know what they thought the the reaction would be. I mean, the 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 last line of the last or the first line of the last paragraph is we know that some people will disagree with our decision. Mm-hmm. Not everyone associated with the Boston Review agrees with everything we say in this letter. That is how it should be. Um, I think that's a weird. Yeah. I think it's a weird rhetorical move. Um, reasonable people who share a commitment to gender equality and also fighting against biases in the publishing industry that marginalize women of color in particular will come to different conclusions. Will they? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's the I, I guess that's the from the the whether or not I agree with the decision that's a separate thing from the interest I have in their logic, but I guess the thing that I see them doing which I think is real in this sense which is is there a line where, have we established, can it be established, can an individual or a group establish outside of the larger discussion of Me Too, whether or not someone has, I don't know, done enough to be removed, to be canceled, to be taken out of our hearts and minds, you know, that that kind of thing. Is it a binary situation? Are there levels to it? How is this thing going to play out? And they've sort of decided that for them, they have a decision to make, which I think is interesting for those of us like you and me and a lot of us. Our decisions about this are very soft. Um, it's not as it's not a keep him or get him rid of. And so when you have that kind of decision, I think your decision-making process is different than... Like for me, I haven't done too much of following the blow-by-blow blow of Diaz because it's crossed the line for me where I'm like... You know, I'm going to let let's let's say back burner my Diaz uh, advocacy passion investment so on and so forth. But that's a lot different than deciding whether or not to keep him in a chair, to keep him in a role. Um, And if you're going to do that, how are you going to decide what? How many is it one? And we talked about this: is it one anonymous blog comment? Is it is it what is the threshold? Now, I think you and I are in agreement here that we would this Diaz is what we've heard about Diaz. Would be enough for us in this situation. To say, you know what? It's best for the publication, probably best for Diaz, frankly, best for the people involved. Certainly, best for our three poetry editors who just resigned um, to part ways and maybe give someone else a crack at this fifteen-year position. Um, but I think that's that. That core question is interesting, and basically, their standard was: is it a pattern? And do, are the things we heard enough to say there is a pattern of behavior here? Now, if they had one weird story from someone on their side, would that have been enough? How many would... I think there's a lot of interesting things. And again, I don't... I, I think they're operating in good faith. I'll say that. It feels to me like they're operating in good faith. Like they wanted to do their due diligence. Um, But it does seem strange that... Or it does seem it does seem like a misreading of the room that they thought that their quote unquote independent investigation would be seen as I don't know a, a counterbalance to the public conversation around mm-hmm. Ds like they I don't I don't think they wildly misjudge the 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 passion the level of attention um, the sort of enough already that this kind of I don't know it's it's a very coolly constructed document. That that kind of coolness would be read as protectionism, excuse making, mm-hmm. which maybe in a different situation maybe it's not. Um, there's nothing here about if we ever, you know, there's no there's no what will happen if we do get a complaint. Like, right. I think that would be helpful. I think that was like, you know what? That doesn't mean he gets a free pass from us. We're going to be extra v- v- vigilant and we're going to make sure that people are open to talking to us and we're going to check in and blah, blah, blah. If something else happens, new information is brought to light. We we're, we're, we will go back and, you know, reconsider his role here. They don't say any of that stuff, Yeah, well, the, um, which I think is crazy. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I, I think that's also untrue well, because I, if there is a big story that breaks tomorrow, that's different, uh, or about someone they know or whatever, I think they would change it. So that's yeah. kind of where I am right now.
1: It's it's interesting. The piece from Vita asks, I think, some questions that are related to that, including yeah. in what ways has Boston Review made a space for people to safely mm. report incidents of harassment? The assumption that because you've never received complaints about something, nothing has ever happened. That in, And maybe it hasn't. Maybe in his 15 years at the Boston Review, Juno Diaz has not used that position of power yeah. in a way that was wrong. Uh, but maybe he has and they don't know about. What mechanism do they have in place for someone to report that? Is it an environment where people feel safe reporting? And Vita also notes that it's also troubling that they kind of put forth this notion that there's a baseline of bad acts that you have to reach in order for the editors to have responded and that Diaz hasn't reached it. They say, at what point is abusive behavior bad enough to merit corrective action? Um, And I think morally the answer is one bad act merits corrective action action merits being addressed so that there's not a, a second bad act that if, if you want to come at it from that way but I think there are kind of there's two different kinds of math that are going mm-hmm. on or that, that should have gone on and there's the does the person deserve to be punished in some way like does yeah. Juno Diaz deserve to have these this position taken away from him because he has misused other positions or because now he has violated our trust in some way. And then the second question is a cost-benefit analysis to the publication of what's better for us to keep him or to ditch him. And it seems to me that they did the does-he-deserve-to-be-punished math and concluded no, but that they didn't do their math on the cost-benefit analysis with an accurate reading of the room, um, that, Mm -hmm. or maybe they weren't thinking about that. I, I'm not sure there's not, you know, that's not made clear in the piece that they wrote of like, well, we've determined it's better for the publication to keep him than to get rid of him. But I think it's implicit in the decision that they've decided, like, we'd rather have him than not. Um, Yes. what are the benefits that they're like, what, uh, that's a real question that I have is what do they think they're getting or keeping By not eliminating his position, that's better than what would happen if they did eliminate it. Um, And Mm -hmm. that ties back to sort of either a failure of imagination or a misreading of the room to, like, you know, you're going to suffer for this because this publication is losing readers' trust by making this decision to keep him on. You've already lost editors. Like, this is not a great situation to be in. It's mm-hmm. not a good look and it seems to me that they didn't anticipate that that's how it would shake out.
0: Yeah, I don't know what they anticipated. I mean, it's also st- this the what is the standard I think is is an open question. I think it's a very real one. I think I would not have came to the decision they made, but we were talking in the editorial Slack, I think or the insider Slack today about there was a, you know, someone was asking about Salman Rushdie. He's like, I thought there was some talk about Salman Rushdie, you know, having some accusations or stories come out about him and we were saying, no, there haven't been, but we've heard stories that he hasn't been great to mm-hmm. some of his wives, you know, and said some things that got me thinking about is this the line, you know, like where his, I think in a different age, I don't know what we call him now, but like he's a, he would tell me if I'm wrong, but like he's a literary playboy, right? Like that's a way of describing Rush He's you know, he goes out to clubs, has, you know, famous, mm-hmm. very attractive women around him all the time is that the line cuz it's not beyond reproach certainly <laughs> like I wouldn't behave that way but does it does it mean that something should happen someone should do something is there anything other than a zero tolerance policy that's possible and I don't have a great answer to that I think Diaz might be the wrong test case for this um because certainly their own staff I mean to me, a bright line would have been to go to your other staff and said, if we made this decision, what would you guys do? And if three of them say we're resigning, right. then you're effectively saying we're going to keep Diaz and jettison you guys, which seems to me really punishing the wrong people um, from a, from a optics point of view. But I, I think it's very strange that... I think there's you could say, you know, we believe the women that are out there. I, mean, I think it's what it's hard to say, and which is what they're saying. I think I would give them a lot more credit if they just said, you know what? We believe the women are out there. This is a hard choice. We may be getting this wrong. But from where we sit, we can only judge our interactions with him at this point. And so far, they've been good. I don't know if that's going to be the case forever, let us know what you think are they op- they're not open for feedback here they didn't say let us know what you think or like we're going to have an open you know uh,
1: or like did you once submit a and, story the to the boston did. review and do the Diaz did. Harassed i mean yeah. and put
0: it a different way is he didn't do anything bad enough in our eyes that would warrant um severing of ties that's the tr- that is the true statement yes and everything else statement. is everything else is kind of wishy-washy almost a pseudo legal ease about there wasn't enough it wasn't. Uh, what's the what's the phrase? Uh, there's not enough reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. right, in our minds. Which, boy, that seems tough. That seems a tough bird. <laughs> yeah, um, you know. In this I, case,
1: I think the Sam Rusty comparison or that question idea is that allows for an interesting distinction because we mm-hmm. do we we now have heard stories about Juno Diaz abusing positions of power um, yes. with relation to, in terms of how he has interacted with women that he has abused positions of power so i think the editors of, of the boston review could have said you know what we haven't heard any complaints about him doing that here but we believe mm-hmm. the women who are telling stories about him abusing his power in other places. And we don't want to take that risk. Like this is, I think Mm -hmm. that this is how I would have come down on this is I don't want to take that risk. If you're abusing your power Mm -hmm. in one room, why do I think my room is special and you're not going to do it here? We don't want to take that risk. Like if someone being a playboy in their social life, you're right. Not above reproach, but also doesn't rise to the level of has abused their position, possibly in an ongoing and systematic way Mm -hmm. that, negatively impacts the literary community and negatively impacts this publication or puts the publication at risk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting line that you just articulated to some degree that might be helpful for people going forward if they're, if they're having trouble at all, you know, maybe people aren't, but like a personal versus professional divide, like, I guess maybe, I mean, criminal acts is a different situation, of course, but like, Things happen in relationships. It gets nasty between people of all genders at different times. Hard to adjudicate that, I think, from the outside. Like one of uh, many O'Neill's razors, you don't know what happens behind closed doors. So, you know, it's very difficult to judge relationships. But a relationship that has a professional valence um, or could have a professional valence, you know, I, the Lauren Stein is the one that comes to mind, like, mm-hmm. you know, closed doors at the Parish Review. That's not, right. you know, that that blurs the line. But maybe that's one where, if if you're interested in not if you don't want to police someone's whole existence um or have to judge it or think about it or you know decide how much stake to put in them artistically that might be a helpful one to say is like is this their personal life or is it their professional life and i don't know if that's helpful here but also it sounds like a lot of the stories that about diaz were on the border or, or one or just or within earshot of the border and with a lot of writers of this power it's hard are, are they dating people? Are they having relationships with people outside the world of publishing entirely? I don't know. It's, it's tricky. I'm I'm not trying to say it's not tricky, but I think that feels like it might've been a helpful thing to say here in this context, if this is the decision they were coming to is like almost like a probationary letter uh, of some kind. If you wanted to keep on, it's like this is we've done an investigation of um, his relationship with his editors here we're very disturbed by the stories we've heard, and we've told. De- I mean, they don't say anything about what they've told them. They haven't said, you know, this is the decision we make. This is why. This is a very probational, provisional kind of thing. Um, we're we're now at a zero tolerance policy for any kind of behavior. Maybe that would have. What do you think of that? Would that would that made a difference, or is it really? Are we really in a moment of off with their heads? It could be that we're in that sort of, you know, French Revolutionary moment, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there is kind of an off-with-their-heads vibe that they clearly are reacting against. I think they didn't do it very well, but I don't think it's necessarily off-with-their-heads or everything's fine. I think there's a there's a third way about that, too, um, you know, that there's a on-leave, there's a probation, there's a, you know, we now have a, a new policy, we have a new you know, we have a new pipeline, a new structure for reporting of monitoring things like that. Um, they haven't they haven't indicated there to be any change in behavior uh, for for Diaz or for the the review writ large, which is troubling um, as well. I agree. Uh, anything else to say about that one?
1: <sighs> no, had a lot more to no. say about that one than I anticipated. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, i, I will give the I, I will give them the credit for putting the um thinking on the page um Mm -hmm. and i don't know that it's great thinking um i think they made a mistake i think there's i think one thing this does is says example of like you can do this they're basically saying you can do what he did as long as you don't do it in our house
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um which is not great bob uh to to quote our favorite uh, madman gif
1: that's i think really what i have a problem with is like well We believe these women, so we believe he has done these things. But he hasn't done them here, so it's fine? Um, Yeah. That that also does not set up a situation in which someone who maybe had a past experience with him related to the Boston Review is going to feel Mm -hmm. comfortable coming forward. To them, So I do, you know, I kind of think this is an off with your head moment that like if for no other reason, it's their job to protect their publication. And this is a bad decision relative to the risk that they're taking by keeping him on both reputationally and because stories might come out. But if you say, if you say we haven't had any complaints about him here, um, we don't think these things are bad enough yet we're making some updates to our policy at Boston Review. If you have feedback about this, or if Mm you've had a negative experience with Juno Diaz and this publication that we should know about, here's how you can contact us. You've already done one round of, you know, we like this guy. We want to keep him around. That that does not create a situation where someone's going to be like, oh, you know, I did have a moment with him and now I'm going to go tell them. Like I've been sitting on it for 12 years and now Mm -hmm. I'm going to go tell them. Um, It doesn't really make it I think that looks, it's performative really of, um, look, we made a way that people could tell us about this. We were open to it. Still, no one did. Um, that story might come out, you know, sideways mm-hmm. or like someone might tell their story on Twitter. They're not going to go to these editors now.
0: Yeah.
1: And this is not what, yeah. this is not what makes people who have been in a situation like that feel comfortable <laughs> reporting it.
0: <laughs> right. So all those stories that have been told, and I have another one, but that was enough. So why would my pebble you know, be enough to fill the jar uh, Mm -hmm. to to see something different happen. Okay, let's move on. Let's do a sponsor. We're we're sponsoring ourselves again. Well, Book Riot Joint is sponsoring ourselves again. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Book Riot's own Recommended. It's a podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books they love. Uh, Each 20-minute episode features two interviews with guests from the book world, each discussing an all-time favorite book, of theirs, not of the book world. I mean, it might be the book world's, but you know, you don't know. It's the, That person's one of their favorites. Whether it's a best-selling author or an editor from behind the scenes or an industry insider, they've all got books to recommend. Season w- one is available in full. It's all out there. And season two, we're in the middle of season two right now. So past guests have included National Book Foundation Executive Director Lisa Lucas, Salam Reads Editor uh, Zareen Jaffrey. Uh, and a whole bunch of authors, including Attica Locke, Lee Bardugo, Jasmine Ward, Alexander Chi, James McBride, Joe Hill, Tessa Dare, and many more. Here's what one listener said: "Hearing the authors give such passionate book recommendations makes me want to read them all. The only competition is the recommended books. <laughs> so find out what books have shaped the lives and careers of some of your favorite authors. You can subscribe to Recommended on Apple Podcasts or the Podcatcher of your choice. You can also find it at BookRat.com/slash." Listen, you and I produced an episode for season two. I don't think we're supposed to say because some of no, these haven't come out. Our yet.
1: guests are secret. Um
0: the secret guests. Oh no, mine's out. Uh oh. actually I'm just looking at it now. Uh Finn Murphy, a truck a bookish truck driver. Uh I got to talk to him. Uh, I'll keep I'll keep uh, what he recommended. And then um Rebecca Rowanhorse, mm. who her new book is is it wait, hold on, let me see if it's out. I think it might be out. Just a second, one quick second. Um Horse lightning. It has something to do with lightning, and I can't remember a trail of lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. Um, it's a uh, uh, fantasy, and I'll, I'll tell. There's more about it. It's, it's it came out uh, June sixth, so last week. Go check those out. Lots of fun. The episodes are quick. You know, we we the other thing that's not in the notes, but you don't actually hear our interview questions. It's cut together. We are only hearing the author kind of doing a monologue. About their book, which is an interesting listening experience. Um, Jen Northington has been producing that behind the scenes for us, and uh, it's a really fun, good, quick listen. Get some book recommendations, here. people talk about books. A kind of spiritual successor to Reading Lives, for those of you missing Reading Lives, um, came out of uh, some of the stuff we liked about Reading Lives the best. All right, let's go into I don't know what it, the retail, I guess the retail side mm-hmm. of the book world. Um, this story. Is in TechCrunch this week. Um, and I'm not uh, super interested in this story in particular, except that it gives us a chance to talk about Kindle Unlimited writ, writ large. Kindle Unlimited, you know, is there is Amazon's, it's basically a subscription service for ebooks where you can read a whole bunch of different ebooks. Um, a lot of them are self published. There's some traditionally published books that get in there, things get rotated in and out. People are paid um, both. Uh, Kindle Direct pays authors both for paid downloads as well as for pages read, and it doesn't sense reading speed, just the highest number of pages reached. Oh. So you see where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. right? So the news peg I'm hanging this to is uh, Kindle Unlimited. A notorious Kindle Unlimited abuser has been booted from the bookstore. Um, who called? They called themselves Chance Carter, one of the biggest abusers of the KDB system. More important, made over fifteen dollars per book they uploaded to the system over and over for books that contained no real content. Um, Carter would create large novels out of other books. Uh, They were hack jobs written by Fiverr writers, which, if you know, is like an online sort of task service. They were hundreds of pages long, and on the first page featured a recommendation to flip to the last page to get a free giveaway. So go to the first page. It tells you to flip to the last page to enter a giveaway, and then Kindle would basically give that author credit for the pages read, it's a mess. It's a whole mess, and there's there's an ongoing saga about this because it's an easy system to game, and Amazon has only paid sort of half attention to it. And then the other thing that does is it, it bilks Amazon out of the money, but Amazon distributes this as a rev share. So legit authors doing it legit ways pay for fraud because that the portion of the money that's going into Kindle Unlimited from um, subscribers gets siphoned off by people who scam, right? Does that make sense, Rebecca? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about here, right? It does. So this is the, this is the biggest action I have seen. Uh, But a, a wild story, a wild story.
1: This is one of those stories that like I've seen headlines about for a while yes. about like people abusing Kindle Unlimited, but it has just been one of those things that it's been like, you know what, I just don't have energy for like one more mm-hmm. thing. So I hadn't like I did not know the details of how this scam was working until like two minutes ago as you were explaining it. And that is wild and creative. And also interesting that either Amazon didn't anticipate that this could happen or has decided they don't care about it much until right now. Um, what a loophole. <laughs>
0: I mean, I don't know a way around it, necessarily, um, in terms of, like, based on the structure they have right now, I guess they'd have to do some sort of page-gating, right? Like, you can only get credit for X number of pages for per hour mm-hmm. of someone, quote-unquote, reading it or flipping through. Um, here, you know, the, the gimmick here is you go to the first page, you flip to the last page, and then... You could enter like a chance to win Tiffany jewelry, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's wild downloads, or you could get paid for having read the book because Carter was getting the equivalent of like $20 per read Jeez. because the paid download plus the skipping to the end. So he could, you could sort of arbitrage it, right? You could then pay the Fiverr authors that helped you hack the book mm-hmm. together to go flip through. Like, Clearly wrong, like clearly yeah. wrong, but it's kind of a wild situation where they do need some sort of gating
1: yeah, or
0: mechanism,
1: like a bot that crawls the text of new books that are yeah. uploaded through KDP that can detect, you know, maybe some of the common phrases or things for this. Right. Like, this feels right. like one of those things where the criminals are always one step ahead of the police, like, mm-hmm. or one step ahead of the systems uh, that whatever amazon does to try to gate it like unless they can really lock down everything somebody who's really trying hard will somebody who's gonna game a thing is gonna find a way to game a thing you know right um, but well, and since amazon wasn't
0: the one oh go ahead go
1: ahead i just like how do people do random people in the world find these books on amazon and buy them in no. giveaways or yeah that's not happening
0: I think there's a secondary sort of marketing campaign to get people to yeah. do it. I mean, it's a, a kind of, it's not unrelated to the um, story we talked about last week or the week before, I don't remember which story uh, week it was about the agency bilking the authors the, out mm, of their royalties mm-hmm. because it's an it's an information dissymmetry. Because Amazon itself isn't getting bilked out of the money because they Amazon is paying out of the revenue share pool. So really the people getting bilked are the other authors doing it legitimately, like not hacking the system, and they don't have on their royalty statement or whatever they get from Amazon. They don't have any sense that how many dollars are getting, you know, effectively taken out of their pie? Like if this loophole was closed, would their payments go up by 1%, 20%, I have, you know like what's the scale of the damage? So that's a situation where the motivation is all on the ro- the people who are motivated to police this and get a system put in place are not the people in position to actually make the system change. Um, so that that's, you know, it, there's a bit of a moral hazard in how Amazon has put this together where it's it's very lucrative and technically it's not illegal. And they are, are they, I, in the in the EULA, are they saying we're not going to, I'm, I'm sure there's something in the end user license agreement with Kindle Unlimited that say you can't do this, or certainly there should be. Um, and then Amazon just hasn't been policing it until now. Um, but this is a this is an Amazon like Amazon's the gatekeeper of this and they do have the power to to at least this this feels like a at least lock the front door situation. I feel like yeah. the, the front door isn't locked on this. Does that does that feel I, right to you? Yeah,
1: that feels right to me. And I would love to know the story of yeah. how they figured out this was happening. Like who at right. Amazon noticed and how did they track it down that this mm-hmm. was going on? Um, yeah, that's wild. I'm kinda glad I've been ignoring um, it until now, frankly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this sort of KDP scam is actually quite unusual um, Amazon has worked to prevent scams like these from taking cash out of the KDP pool but this one was so long running and ingenious that it's not surprising it took so long to pull these both from the store interesting the flip to end scam doesn't quite work on newer Kindles but still works on older non-updated Kindles which makes it a lucrative scam so like there's like it's kind of like a blind spot within a blind spot it mm-hmm. sounds like it's like old Kindles old rules a particular kind of hack um, but an interesting uh, interesting thing to, to take a look at here. All right, let's move along. Where do you want to go next? Why don't you choose the next story? You know, we're yeah, not going to make it all these, so where do you want to go? this is just a
1: quick, interesting follow-up. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine um, doing a partnership with Audible that includes mm-hmm. Reese's Book Club, but also some Audible originals, and we were sort of scratching our heads out loud about, like, what are these Audible originals going to be, and is this mm-hmm. content that'll get made in print down the line somewhere, and... Uh, last week, there was a story in the New York Times that Michael Lewis, among others, but I think Michael Lewis is the the big, big name, mm-hmm. uh, is going to be releasing his next book or his next work only on audio as an Audible original. Um, he's betting that his audience will expand and that this will draw more people to his work. And in May, he signed a multi-year contract with Audible for four audio original stories with the first schedule to come out in July. Um, this is personally exciting to both of us because we love yes. Michael Lewis.
0: We love Michael Lewis. Um,
1: he won't reveal further details about the story, but he plans to narrate it himself. Um, and he's part of a growing list of a, a growing group of A-list authors that are bypassing print and releasing audiobook originals hoping to get into this exploding audiobook market i'm um, also on this list is ada calhoun whose book wedding toasts i'll never give um, was one of my favorites of last year and is a book that if you put me on an episode of recommended i would probably mm. be talking about um mm-hmm. she's currently working on an audio original for audible as well as our um The historian Robert Caro, the novelist Jeffrey Deaver. So really just sort of interesting piece here. Um, It says Audible is the biggest player with more than 425,000 titles in its online store. That's a crowded arena, but they're Hmm. looking for ways to not just sell audiobooks, but to create them independently from publishers and make their profit margins even higher. Um, So Audible executives. A couple of questions I have about this.
0: Oh, let me know if you you know other things. So mm-hmm. I'm an Audible member. Are you, Do you have an, an, an active Audible membership, Yes, America? I do. Yeah. So this is going to be a 10,000-word story from Michael Lewis, right? So that's what? That's kind of a long, it's like a long magazine article or more, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not a novella. So it's somewhere between a, a long feature and a, uh, a it's novella. It's
1: probably like a, well, let's see. So an episode of Annotated is what, about 4,000 words? And that's about
0: 4,000 words, yeah. minutes. So this is like going to be an hour Maybe something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, Probably a little faster because there's not interviews and ads and stuff. Yeah. So do we – are we have to use a credit to get it? Like, or do we have to pay a couple bucks for it? Like, how am I going to give them – does that make sense? Like, or do you – is it clear to you how – or did I miss something? I feel like this New York Times, we sort of met – at least for those – at least for schmucks like us who are audible people, like – what do I have to do to get this thing? Is it like the Audible Channels podcast thing where it's included in our membership? And none of those things would surprise me, frankly. I just don't know which way it's going to mm-hmm. go.
1: I any idea? Don't what you, know. What's your guess I mean, then?
0: If, if we don't know, um, what's your guess? What do you think? My
1: guess is that we will have to use a credit for it because you know an eighteen dollar credit. Well, you, you know, huh. last year when there was that like novella that sold in hardcover for twenty eight ninety nine for like hundred and six mm-hmm. pages. Yeah, that is the appropriate sound effect. But but the you know the like it sold at a regular hardcover price point. The audiobook of it was also just treated like a regular thing. I I I would guess you're going to have to spend a credit on it. I recently uh, well, I'm not I doing mean, this that. is cuz I'm like I'm a softy, but I recently spent a credit on Dear Madam President by Jennifer Palmieri, who's a <laughs> former Obama staffer and it's a tiny yes. book, it's great, but it was like a 2-hour audiobook. Mm. But I felt good about it. I enjoyed those 2 hours.
0: Yeah, I have a hard time for an audiobook less than 5 hours to, to, to pony up one of my credits for. I, I guess I'm miserly. My guess would I guess what would feel fair to me is that if you're an Audible member, you pay a couple bucks. Like mm. you can't use a credit; you have to actually pwn up a, a couple dollars. That that would make sense to me. I also wouldn't be surprised if it was free for Audible. Yeah, that orders. would be cool. It might be a way to get people to sign up. They've already i, I would I would be I wouldn't be shocked if I needed to use a credit. I think I would be surprised if they made you use a credit. Um, but I, I don't know; it could go a couple different ways.
1: I've lost this reminds the spot me of a, this piece, but it says oh, like yeah. they've already published seven, seven hundred or several hundred. I'm scrolling, um, Audible Originals, so maybe we can like put on our detective hats and go back. Oh yeah, Yes,
0: yeah, right. Or if you've listened, I haven't done a, I haven't done one of these Audible Originals. So, podcast at bookwrite. Let us know your experience with that. Oh, oh, for Kindle Unlimited stuff too. If you're a Kindle Unlimited power user, author, if you've got other intel, if you need to be a secret birdie, we will protect your your bird identity, um, if need be. Uh, another little bit of anecdote. I meant to put this in the show notes, or it was just a tweet from John Scalzi. He was revealing some of the sales figures for Lock In, his his mm. book Lock In, mm-hmm. and his number one, not just in revenue, but in agri- in raw copy sold, audio, audio oh. was outsold ebook. And print. I don't think combined, but it was the number one format for lock in, which I thought was a remarkable.
1: That is uh, fascinating
0: uh, statistic. Or sort of an uh, anecdotal piece. I, I think Will Ween may have, you know, narrated. So it it got a bunch. Um, mm. You know, it had a little bit of shine on the audiobook, but still, and it wasn't close, as my memory. I'll try to find the. I'll I'll try to find the tweet and do some follow up about it. But it, it jumped out to me. I was like, whoa. Um, I don't know if it's because it's sci-fi. I don't know if it's because people who follow Scalzi are like internet people and they're a little more technologically savvy. I don't know, you know. I don't know if it's genre. There's a lot of things I could that you know are plausible reasons that could be the case. It could be randomness, um, but I thought that was really interesting to see. Um, yeah, that, that is that really was interesting.
1: True. I would not have guessed.
0: Let me do a sponsor. Speaking of audio content, the Great Courses Plus. This is such oh, a good so sponsor good. for us. It is. We love learning. Diving deep into the stories and topics that fascinate us. We may even done a podcast just for this reason. <laughs> it's why I am a big fan of The Great Courses Plus. This is unlimited access to learn anything that interests you. The Great Courses Plus is that you... you Basically, it's a membership program. You sign up and you get access to courses um, that you know, basically kind of works like a course in each lecture, each you know uh, video, each audio section is about 30 minutes long. It's that sweet spot. Where an expert, a professor, a teacher, and you know, industry insider teaches you about that course. And we have one that we recommend especially to Book Riot listeners. It's called Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. I have to confess that when I was researching the very first annotated episode about George Orwell's 1984, I signed up for a free trial of the Great Courses Plus just to listen to the uh, course. Uh, in at the excuse me the lecture in this course about about George Orwell and political dystopies, it was great. I learned a lot. Give me a great overview um, if you 're a podcast listener, if you 're a fan of this show, if you like audiobooks, you can dip in and out as well. you know you have access to all the courses so if you don 't want to go through the whole thing and I was just looking at one about you know um, language and world civilizations. I was looking I was like i don 't think i 'm going to do all of them, but there are a couple i like, 'm definitely going to watch that one as well so it 's a lot of fun. you learn a lot. It's not scripted. You have a you have a professor they're talking. They have a, they have lecture notes, but it feels organic and it feels like you're listening to a professor talk. It doesn't feel like you're just reading listening to someone read a Wikipedia entry. Um, in this particular course, you know, there's Suzanne Collins, there's two there's two lectures on Octavia Butler alone. Cool. You get Hunger Games, you get Orwell, you get all the way going back to the early days of dystopia literature. And that's just one of the courses you can enjoy. There's business stuff, there's stuff about language, history. Um, continue education. I know that's something we've heard a lot from Book Riot people. Is like, I kind of wish I could go back to school with the appreciation I have now for learning and what I could access there. This you can kind of keep in your pocket. They have a great app. I just downloaded it and tried it out to make sure you can download the, the lectures for offline listening and viewing as you go. You know, um, And there's so much. There's thousands of them. You're never going to run out. So you're always going to have something there. Literature, history, science, music, even cooking and photography. So here's the special offer. We know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. So we've got a special offer, limited time, just for our listeners get an entire month of unlimited access for free. You should go, just go try it for free. Uh, to start your free month, you, might, you must sign up at this URL. Okay, so that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot, one word, because you know you can't do two words in URLs. But anyway, I thought I should put that out there. thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. There'll be a link in our show notes. Go check it out. See if it's a thing that's right for you. I think a lot of you out there will really be into it. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show this week. All right, couple more stories. Where do you want to go? Where
1: do I want to go? Let's see. Uh, there's a new publisher in the UK yes. called DeMontfort De Literature, They are using an algorithm to identify career novelists, and they hope to be able to free writers from having to have a second job, so they're going to offer budding authors a £24,000 per year salary. Um, the company started as a part of a, leg- a London hedge fund called De Montfort Capital. Um, so that's you know where the money is coming from. But they're using some kind of algorithm, psychometric tests and interviews um, to figure out like basically who's going to be a career writer that they can make money off of. This is kind of an upfront uh, investment as well identify these career novelists pay them twenty four thousand pounds per year um hoping that that will which like that's not a super lot of of money um if you're trying to keep them from mm. having a second job so that's also interesting i think um they're going to offer mentors and editors to provide advice and support. There's going to be um, up to 10 spots available. And then they're going to be involved. DeMontfort will be involved in designing and promoting and publishing the work. And the authors will receive 50% of the profits. Um, so this mm-hmm. also seems to be an agentless situation. Yep, That's a higher right. percentage of the profits than authors typically receive um, for publishing deals. So the founder, Jonathan DeMontfort, said that holding down a full-time job is not conducive to writing fiction. So it occurred to me, if we pay a salary that allows writing to become a full-time occupation, then we could free up lots of talented authors.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. I think this um, so, is
0: super interesting for like nine thousand reasons. What what do you yes. what do you what do you think is most interesting about this? Yeah,
1: the algorithms, probably.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, algorithm is interesting. Yeah,
1: um, I think the notion of freeing up writers to just write, um, especially if you think that that writer is a good investment for your company and you're likely to get you know books out of them that make you money and make them money. Freeing them up to not be distracted by mm. a day job is excellent um it seems to me that you could also solve some of the distraction problems by finding writers who just need childcare and paying for the child care yeah. like providing a salary isn't the um it's sort of like having a day job is not the only thing that prevents someone from becoming a writer mm-hmm. um i think it's it's really interesting i'm curious about the whole the algorithm thing the psychometric test thing like um which books become bestsellers and which writers have long-term success and maybe uk publishing is yeah. different but US publishing is very fickle you know you could have three novels but if the fourth one doesn't sell very well, that's the one that people are looking at when you're going to get your fifth novel deal and then then you were a career writer and you're not one anymore. Uh, it's uh, it's I, hmm yeah I just think it's a, it's an interesting proposition to you know yeah. we want you to be able to focus on your writing and um, we love it when like the MacArthur Genius grants happen and creative people can just do interesting creative work. But the way that they're going to identify the candidates for it, I have some like Scooby-Doo brain noise arrrr, yeah. questions.
0: I feel like it's something that I want someone to try in this regard. I don't know if this particular situation, but I, I feel like there is a sort of money ball for fiction that's out there. You know, like mm-hmm. the money ball being like, we're, we're all trying to put baseball players on the field that perform well. But historically, everyone does it the same way. And that, is that way based on anything? Is that way accurate? Is this the best way to do things? I don't know if what this is, but you know, the, the historical way of doing it is like you write especially let's just use fiction. You write a book just by yourself or with a group, a writing group, then you Cold pitch agents who may or may not take you, and then those agents pitch publishers, right? Mm-hmm. Based on what we're told, which I don't know whether or not to believe this. Just the manuscript alone, which again I don't know if that's true. We've we've heard some things about you know what the what the what the presumed gender of your application of, of your management A lot of stuff goes in like this. But the question of it, is that the is there another way you could do this like could you gather more information about the manuscripts about the authors about the you know the genre or whatever else it might be that would help you make a better decision is this is this person more likely to get on base so to speak because of reasons that are different other differently measured than what's done historically? I think that's really interesting. um I'd be very careful about this if you're signing up for this to ask about rights. do they get rights forever? there's a fifty percent I'd assume you're giving up something more. I mean, they're giving you more profits and a stipend. So what are they what are you getting? <laughs> what uh-huh. are they getting that's not the agency model that I'd watch out for? But I like it as an you know, you know I like experiments. <laughs> so I like this experiment. I would not like to be one of the guinea pigs necessarily in this experiment. I'd like to see how this experiment comes out, but I would not sign up um, to go into this particular maze. But I like this idea of like psychometric test that sounds like mumble de jumble, but like are there different kinds of personality types? That tend to deliver manuscripts on time. Just, mm-hmm. You know, like well, th- th- I'm assuming there are things you could find out about people yeah, from doing a little more research about the people.
1: That's kind of where I was headed. Is DeMontfort Fort notes. Uh, farther down in this piece, further down that um, he thinks this is fairer than traditional publishing methods because the algorithm is oblivious to your background, yeah. culture, wealth, Right, because algorithms gender. are all
0: um, uh, uh, objective, mm. right? That's Yeah, what there's learned.
1: no bias, yeah, right. he says. Mm-hmm. But here's the interesting yeah. line. It only cares that you have what it takes to be a top-selling novelist, which mm-hmm. I need to know then, what is it that it takes to be a top-selling <laughs> novelist? Right. Like, what are the things that the algorithm is looking for? And what are those based on? Because I think you're Right, that there is interesting data to be gathered about, like maybe there are common personality factors or common Mm -hmm. whatever's. Maybe best-selling novelists all have the same Myers-Briggs type. I don't know. Yeah, Um, who knows? But I don't think anybody has done that work. So what is he pulling from in his determination of like how, what the algorithm has been programmed to look for um, right. in, in terms of what it takes to be a top selling novelist? Like what is the desired result of this psychometric test? That's like, yes, this person has it. What's the it? Um, I yeah, would if, if
0: algorithm uses historical bestsellers, then you've got, you've got a white dude situation, right? Because right. there's a lot of white dudes on that list. Now maybe it can solve for that in some other way. Maybe that's, a correlative to something else, or you know, um, like maybe that's a, a, a mistake. You know, it would actually be better if we had identified other authors. Like, that's I guess that's the, presum- that's the presumption we sort of make, right? Is like there were other authors that could be James Patterson, that mm-hmm. for whatever reason about identity or biases of various kinds didn't get to be the starting third baseman for the New York Yankees. But if we looked at it a little bit differently, not only would different kinds of people be on third base, but we'd have better performance. Um, that's kind of what they're betting on. I, I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of red tape and, um, fine print. I would be super Mm -hmm. interested to know about this. Um, yeah, it's so there's, interesting. There's I think that's our. I think that's got to be our show this week. I
1: think so too. Uh, we
0: have a hero of the week. Let's save that for for Thursday. Um, at the end, we, we we're more beaten down by the end of the week than we it's are true. The the week. true. So let's, <laughs> I'm let's still feeling fresh. I had box. such
1: a nice morning. <laughs>
0: that's what I'm <laughs> saying. That's what feelings. I'm saying. Let's save yeah. this when we need it. You, you, save, you save your save uh, your diet coke for four o'clock in the afternoon. You don't you don't drink it at ten a.m. Uh, that's our show this week, Rebecca. Thank you so much uh, as always. Um, choose an email, podcast bo- uh, b- <laughs> at Boo Riot. No, uh, yes. podcast at BookRiot.com. Uh, find show notes at BookRiot.com slash listen. We'll talk to you guys
1: later. Have a good one.